Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. Every year on April 22nd, we look forward to Earth Day, the birth of the modern environmental movement in 1970, when some 20 million people attended inaugural events across the country. This year's theme is Invest in Our Planet, and there's certainly much investment to be done as we face an increasing number of extreme weather patterns, natural disasters, and rising global temperatures. At the same time, beyond environmental activism, it's important to explore more deeply, more personally and spiritually, our relationship with nature. In today's episode, we talk with Rebecca Wildbear, the creator of a yoga practice called Wild Yoga, which empowers individuals to tune into the mysteries that live within the earth community, their dreams, and their own wild nature, so they may live a life of creative service. Rebecca, a soul guide and author also of the, of the new, newly published uh, book, Wild Yoga, A Practice of Initiation, Veneration, Advocacy for the Earth, helps individuals create a personal practice that stretches their awareness and awakens their connection to the place that we all most deeply belong to, the earth. So now let's meet our guest, Rebecca Wildbear. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. You're quite welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I I have to say that as I was looking for a guest for um, this month, which of course has Earth Day, as as I sort of mentioned in the intro, I was interested not just in, in, you know, I don't want to say the usual, but the traditional view of um, you know, environmental activism, but really in this more personal sense of nature, um, which um, I, in a previous conversation with you, I was mentioning before the show that I felt as a kid, you know, deeply grounded in nature as a young child, um, just you know, going out in the woods in back of my house and being able to really appreciate and enjoy and uh, you know enjoy the 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 actual uh, participation with uh, you know, identifying aspects of nature, but really feeling it, you know. And so um, I'm glad that you uh, we have you on the show. And before I actually start into talk about wild yoga, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved? And how did tell me a little about your journey into wild yoga? Well, I've I've always loved nature. I grew up in a suburban neighborhood uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., and so it wasn't real nature-filled, but uh, I had a lot of trees, even some old trees, even a giant old ash tree in my backyard and lots of pine trees, and I was always climbing in them and always uh, going to the open spaces that I could find. And my grandparents lived near the ocean and the pine barrens, and I got to go in the wilderness when I visited them. And um, as soon as I was old enough to be able to um, go to summer camp and work at summer camp and be in wilder places like the Catoctin Mountains, I did that. And then ultimately in my 20s, I became an outward bound guide going on 50 day bound course and then becoming an outward bound guide. So as soon as I was into adulthood, I was spending as much time in wild places as I possibly could. And of course, it took some time to get comfortable in them because I was raised in civilization, which teaches us to be comfortable in civilization. Um, but something in me just loved being in nature. And so uh, I longed to get comfortable. And by spending lots of time out there, I ultimately have become more comfortable in nature than in civilization. Mm. And um, 
feel more at peace, more at ease, more connected to the, to the real of everything and have um, now at 50 spent most of my adult life, I would, I say in wild places between working as a wilderness guide, working as a wilderness therapist, uh, traveling in the wilderness myself, being a river guide. And um, I guide people as well as go on my own journeys in the wilderness. And um, like you mentioned, it's, it's in part to be in conversation with the animate natural world and also to open to, to the wild nature in ourselves. I'd like to say wild yoga helps us find our own wild nature and deepen our connection to nature. And it also stretches our consciousness to other wild forces, other animate wild forces, including our muse and the dream world um, and our own bodies. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the, you know, one of my favorite quotes uh, is from Thoreau, you know, in wildness is the preservation of the world. Now, I know he meant it a little bit differently at his time, talk, just talking about freedom, but but I like still like the notion of an internal and an external wildness that connected connects us. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, you know, wild yoga. So how does it differ from uh, other kinds of yoga? Well, I think one of the main things is that in mainstream yoga nowadays, uh, yoga is synonymous with yoga asana. So when people say the word yoga, they assume you're talking about a, a class or movement of postures of some kind. And the way I mean yoga is in the traditional form of the way yoga meant, which is that asana practice is one branch in the tree, but there are many other branches. Um, you know, that yoga is a, a journey of our own a personal growth and awakening into our bodies, our wild bodies. Uh, yoga poses were originally named after animals for a reason. Hmm. And um, it's also connecting. It's about our relationship to everything. It's acknowledging that we're not separate, that we're connected and that, you know, there's a coming into our individual nature, our note. And there's also a being in relationship and listening to everything else, which is at the core of what wild yoga is. And, you know, we bring in asana practice as part of that to help us deepen, but, there's um, a lot of other aspects um, and practices we can step into to deepen into that relationship. So did you basically um, begin, as you were talking before about your journey, to, um, uh, from the, the wildness side and then integrate the yoga aspect to it, you know, sort of? I would say I was, I've always had a lifelong connection to nature and have been a kind of a nature mystic in a way mm. where I experienced the higher power through uh, nature and I was a philosophy religious studies major in school after being raised Catholic and seeking questions and trying to find my own personal mystical connection and um, came to determine that it was mostly through nature but then after I had cancer when I was 21 in college um, I opened to a sense of uh, the the sacred and the holy even beyond just nature that there is a um, a connection a spiritual connection to everything even whether whatever world I'm in um, and there's also an internal soul depth that um, I can connect to mystery that I'm here to live. And so I connected uh, to that. And then um, I began my first yoga class ever was after I had cancer. Actually, it was while I was going through treatment because I had a very busy life. I was, you know, an achiever and I was doing lots of great things. Editor of the newspaper, a student, RA. Um, but I was, you know, one of the kind of typical attitude you can have when you're young, I'm superhuman and you can do everything. And my, right. my illness forced me to stop and go slow. And that's kind of when I started to have this spiritual soul experience because I had to stop doing everything and just sit still. And I also was contemplating death. So I became to, you know, become more aware of what is my life really supposed to be about. 
And um, I did a yoga asana class during that time too. I had been an athlete. I was always playing sports and was quite good at them. But yoga was different. You know, it really was humbling. And um, I didn't feel like I could do it very well right away. I, I was, I met my inflexibility and um, many people say that even yoga teachers, my yoga teacher said that too, is that his first yoga class, he didn't go back to yoga for a while. There's, mm. there's a humility that greets us about yoga. Um, but ultimately in, by my late twenties, I knew that I needed to do yoga. My body was so tight from all the sports and the outdoor sports. And, and I knew it was the healthy move to make. And so I began to study yoga and then I went to a yoga teacher training because I'm always in remote places and I wanted to be able to do it on my own. Mm. And I, I studied where, who to study with. And I ultimately picked my teachers, Don and Amba Stapleton, um, in Nasara, Costa Rica. And, mm. um, and I studied with them. It was a Kripalu, um, vinyasa style yoga, but also Don Stapleton has his own version of self-awakening yoga, which is very slow meditation with movement, um, kind of a healing and a tuning in to your to your body and also a tuning into yourself as a yoga teacher and the, your style, which is unique from anybody else. And uh, so that is where I started. And I kept going back to Costa Rica and studying with Don and Amba until ultimately I was on their faculty helping to be a yoga teacher trainer in some of their, um, especially in their inner quest, which was a really deep personal journey into one's own form of yoga and one's own personal journey. And, uh, and then I studied with lots of other teachers too, because I'm, I'm always curious about different styles of yoga. I studied some Anyasara and some my Ingar, which are quite different from the style I use, but just to get, I like to get all sides of the story, so mm. to speak. Yeah. Um, and, um, and yeah, wild yoga came while studying in Costa Rica. I was in conversation with the, uh, tide pools in Nassara, Costa Rica, like I'd learned to be. I had also become a guide with Animus Valley Institute and done their soul craft apprenticeship and initiation program and learned to talk to nature and teach other people mm -hmm. how to talk to nature. So I was talking to nature um, just in love with it because this was a particularly beautiful place and wanting to give back to it. And suddenly what emerged is a vinyasa flow in tide pool, ocean wave on rock and in sand. And I was doing it in this flow of motion I write about in chapter one. And it, you know, the natural world was telling me this is something. So make sure you do it. And I still, it's so easy to doubt myself. And I definitely did. I was like, oh, this is, this is not anything. And anyway, I ultimately followed what nature was telling me and began to do wild yoga programs in Costa Rica and then sometimes in other places and bring wild yoga as a practice into my community in Colorado and bring yoga in, into um, the practices when I guided other programs as well as part of the way to tune into oneself and to tune into nature. Yeah. So you just mentioned a minute ago about talking with nature. So how do you do that? How do you teach people to talk to nature? Well, first, it's like, it's kind of a way of perceiving nature, and it's counterintuitive for people in our world nowadays because, um, well, it's not believed to be possible, you know. But if we look at time, uh, for most of the time humans have been on the planet, they've talked to nature. Our ancestors talked to nature, wherever we're from. And now we were taught more that nature is an inanimate object to be utilized as resources. Um, but mm -hmm. we have to kind of um, reopen our windows of perception. And I mentioned in the second chapter, uh, many steps to get there. 
Um, the first one would be, you know, taking off your your iPhones and your technologies and going out in nature and right. just, you know, just being present, trying to clear our mind of all of our thoughts and agendas and just looking at the other, the you know, the others and just take them in, see their relationship. And, uh, you know, there's uh, many steps I mentioned in my book, but it leads ultimately to also opening our imaginations, like to the five-year-old in us who wouldn't have a problem talking to trees or rocks. In fact, maybe you did as a five-year-old. I did. I talked to trees and rocks until someone said, hey, you shouldn't be talking <laughs> to trees and rocks. That's, they're not real. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I didn't again until a couple decades later when I discovered that wasn't true. Right. Uh, so, you know, using your bring your five year old out, use your imagination and um, let yourself play as if the natural world is alive. How would you engage? Because we're trying to just open ourselves to a perception that is in our DNA to perceive, but that we've been taught not to. So you have to be willing to sort of play and be a little messy, not get a response right away. I say I always say it's not like coffee talk. It's not like human conversation, you know, where it's like there's a back and forth all the time. Sometimes you might get an immediate response. Sometimes you might not. Right. Um, but it's also a listening with your deep imagination for a response, which means a surprise. Um, right. Usually it, something arises in your mind, um, in your memory, in your body sensations, even words in your mind. That's a surprise that you didn't expect, that you wouldn't have thought of. And sometimes it arises in the outer world in the form of weather changes or animals that show up. And sometimes it's very mysterious, like you don't quite know what it means. You might have felt like you engaged with nature, but you don't quite know. And you got a communication, but you don't quite know what it is. So it's a willingness to hang out with a response that might not be uh, something you know what it means right away. Yeah. This is not, you know, an experience in nature. But I, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, uh, our, our family. Uh, one of our sons just got a, a, a puppy. A young, you know, a little um, uh, golden retriever, and uh, so w even even going out into the yard with her is interesting because you know I I try to take a few minutes walking her walking her around, but you know the the temptation is to look at your phone while you're walking the dog, right? But it's like no, no, put your phone away, and and just see what is what is she seeing, what is she smelling, what is she looking at. Um, it's, and it's fascinating. I mean, I, I, I think to myself, I, I wish that, you know, smell was color coded so I could see what, what is she, how is she seeing the world and what is she, what happens when she picks up, um, rocks or twigs or, you know, whatever grass and, and, uh, as you were saying before, I mean, she's talking to these things, right? She's, she's in relationship with these things. So it really, you know, it, it forced me just like, uh, back into my not literally that uh, my youth but but thinking about you know just that fresh experience that reconnecting which i thought is uh that's that's nice that's really that feels good you know yeah um i have a i have a dog too and uh, i oftentimes i bring him on some of the programs i guide and he um i always say he's the teacher of coming back into our wild nature if you watch him he's not He's not limited or afraid by social cues. He's he's just kind of following these urgings in his body and in relationship to the land. Right, right. Kids are like that too, young kids. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, so, uh, Rebecca, we're, we're coming up to a short break. Um, but, uh, folks, when we come back, we'll be talking much more with Rebecca Wildbear, the author of Wild Yoga. Uh, and uh, 
a newly published book and also the creator of the practice of wild yoga. So uh, we have a lot more to talk about in our next segment with uh, Rebecca. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking today with Rebecca Wildbear, the creator of the practice of wild yoga. Uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, a lot of things related to wild yoga. Uh, and before we uh, dive back into her practice and her thoughts about it, um, I just found it interesting. I wanted her to talk about um, her decision to uh, take the name Wildbear, what that means. It probably isn't what we thought you might have thought it was, but it's an interesting story in itself. Yeah, thank you. The uh name wild bear um i changed actually in my late 30s and i at that time i didn't actually know um the depth of my connection to wild bear um i just kind of liked the name and wanted a name that helped connect me to nature and um i liked wild i liked bears um bears did come to me a lot in my dreams but when i continued to keep following my mythic purpose and listening to the guidance in nature um, I did have an experience where bear has come to me even more viscerally and fully in my body um, to tell me that bear is actually part of my mythic purpose to live like bear, to be bear, to learn ferocity from bear. And um, I also, in researching my ancestry, my grandfather um, is Swedish. And so he comes from the Norse mythology background. They believe that we all have seven, uh, six souls. And one of them is called uh, Fialja or our animal soul. And that, um, that that gets passed down through the generations from ancestor to ancestor. And my grandfather's last name was Stromborn, um, which um, B-G-A-O-R-N in Nor in uh, it used to be B-J-R-O-N before the J was dropped. And which means river bear in mm. Norse mythology. So it was the river bear that was guiding my grandfather and his ancestors before him. And I believe that bears come to me in my dreams and waking experiences in part from that ancestry. And, um, but I didn't know that the ancestry until after I was already having the experiences and the dreams with bear and I had already taken it on, but it was great to feel that connection to the name. So there's been a continuing story of my changing it kind of almost unconsciously, not fully knowing its full meaning. And then over the last um, 30 years, you know, actually after over the last 20 years, coming into an under greater understanding of the name. 
It's a great story. I love that. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to, to go back a little bit to, um, you know, the, the notion of connecting to um, uh, the environment and, and yoga. And one of the things I liked about your uh, language um, is that you refer to um, connecting the ecological revolution to the part to practice of yoga. And uh, yeah, I do think that words matter sometimes. And so what I'm looking at is the, is the choice of ecological versus environmental, which I think is, for me, um, significant, just as a recognition of what you talk about in terms of the connection. And so when you talk about the environment, it's still sort of like, well, it's the stuff around us as opposed to part of us. So talk a little bit about that, uh, uh, your, yeah. your choice. Yeah, the you know, ecology, like deep ecology, you know, the world is made up of ecosystems and, you know, the ecosystems of the earth make up the biosphere. And, um, you know, I've heard it said, and I agree with this, that, you know, what brings um, the earth into health is healthy ecosystems. When ecosystems are destroyed or things happen to them, that brings them out of balance, you know, ecosystems can die. And when ecosystems die, ultimately that leads to the possible death of the biosphere. So when we're talking about the health of the earth, um, if we're talking about being an earth advocate, then attending to these ecosystems is crucial. And, uh, you know, too often, I would say, at least for my liking, you know, in uh, personal work and in yoga, sometimes it, there's a very heavy focus on the individual I'm a former psychologist that there's super heavy focus on, you know, if individuals are unhealthy, those individuals can be restored to health. And one of the things I wanted to bring in ecological revolution is that I wanted to highlight a premise that I don't think it's really possible for individuals to be restored to health by themselves. I mean, we can become a bit healthier, you know, we can process or work on some things and come in, you know, we can certainly come into our soul. That work has been really deep for me. You know, we can understand our purpose. We can heal and whole, but that alone is only a piece in the puzzle, you know, that really the journey concludes, you know, with a healthy earth, our health and well-being is connected to the well-being of the planet. And so I see part of the need for um, becoming a uh, whole and healthy and in, intact relationship with everything as ecological revolution. Cause right now our, our dominant culture is um, in a, in a way of being in the world that's destroying ecosystems. And it has been for some time, of course, the momentum's building and it's been getting worse on some levels and, you know, some people jump in to help out, but on some level, these systems are still going pretty strong. So uh, what it really means to bring ourselves into yogic spiritual health balance regardless of the outcome of the future, but just in the now, bringing ourselves into balance is actually revolution. It's changing, fundamentally changing um, the way that we are living and not a, not a mild change or a minor reform, um, but radical, radical change, which is what revolution is. Right. Yeah. I think that um, I find it interesting that, that uh, a lot of, uh, I don't know, business jargon or, or uh, you know, sociological jargon has kind of appropriated the term, the ecosystem, right? Like, oh, let's look at the ecosystem of, you know, the uh, the publishing business. It's like, no, that, that's, you're just, that's just appropriation of a term. And I think that, uh, but okay, it's a start that people recognize it. Um, but, uh, but as you just said, uh, really understanding and, and accepting the ecosystem requires a certain humility, right? That it's like, no, we're not the, really the center. We're just part of this big thing. You know, that's it's significant. We we're affecting it. We're changing it, but we're still part of yeah. it. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, ecosystems have a, have a way of life and have their own boundaries, you know, which they need to be honored to be uh, to maintain themselves intact and living. Yeah. So before you were talking a little bit about animistic uh, perceptions, and uh, uh, one of the chapters of your book is called uh, Receive the Love of the Trees. So I wanted to just ask you to talk more about this. Again, we were talking about talking to nature, but um, talk to me about how, you know, the trees and forests and how to be closer to them and protect them. Yeah, the, well, the, speaking of ecosystems, the forest ecosystem is just one of my absolute favorites. I mean, I know you can probably imagine when you go out into an intact ecosystem, forest ecosystem, and no, I'm not just talking about planted trees, which are great too, but a full-on ecosystem, especially one with ancient old trees that have been around a while and can feed the other generations of tree. You can feel the vibrancy and the life in that forest um, above the ground and below the forest floor. Um, in many ways, even though humans ha are limited in understanding um, all the sensory ways that trees are in communication with other species and uh, beings as well as themselves, the way they feed uh, their neighbors, um, even care for young ones and care for stumps even in, in, in sick trees. Um, trees are just full of love. They give oxygen to the entire world. Like our, our climate wellness depends on how many trees we have. And so when you go into a system like that, to me, you're stepping into love, virtual love, just a, a field of love and highly developed communication. And when I have stepped into it, it's been a place where I have feel like I have received so much and I've watched other people I've guide receive so much. In fact, uh, I write about in my book times when I was struggling to love myself and how I would go to the trees for help. And they still give me help. I spent years apprenticing to them on how to love. Seems to me that trees know better how to love than humans, at least consistently. Humans have their great moments and we have our not so great mo moments. But trees pretty consistently love, they just do. And so how do we open to you know, their way of being and their way of uh, communing with uh, their fellow trees in the forest as well as all the other creatures? To me, the trees are a higher form of consciousness and by communing with them and having them be our elders, we can learn from them. Yeah. And we, we can receive love in our body. Love is a lot like oxygen. Um, I'm sure you might know when it's missing, it just, it hurts. It's just missing. It's like almost hard to breathe. It's hard to live. And yet there's this plentiful supply in the forest and trees are so giving. And when we are filled with love, then our capacity to love deepens too. Yeah. I think they're, they're, they're underappreciated and overlooked. I think you're right. I, I think that they do teach us a lot about relationships. As you said, like mostly there are, there are societies of trees. They're not just singular trees. You know, they exist in community. Um, and I think that uh, we, we still have a lot to learn about them. We, we, there's, you know, you probably know a lot more than most about about it. But, um, you know, in terms of how they communicate, we don't even think about the fact that they communicate. Um, and just a certain reverence for them. I, as you were speaking, I was, think, I was thinking back to um, my father, who, when we moved to Long Island, uh, it was wild where, where we moved. And so they did have to, you know, that he moved with a, a group of other engineers from the company he worked at, uh, and each created their own plot, um, and built their houses. Um, and one of the things that I was remembered about him is that, so there's a, it was a necessary amount of clearing that he, he had to do to build a house, but he did the minimum. <laughs> he kept as many trees as he could. And I, mm. 
I always felt um, you know, a reverence that he had about nature, even though he was basically a city kid, grew up in Brooklyn, but he still felt that, and uh, he he you know kept as many trees as he could, um, and I was respected for that. I thought it it taught me a lot. I think in, intrinsically that I didn't even realize about how I felt about nature. Um, so um, I, I'm all for talking with trees and listening to what they have to say. Um, so let me just uh, go back to from the external to the internal again about um, you talk a lot about listening to your body and, and listening to the mystery within. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, sometimes, you know, we have things happen in our body where we don't even know why they happen. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's illnesses and why do they happen? And sometimes even smaller than on a full on illness, we might have body sensations um, unusual pains or feelings, um, you know, that we can listen to our body like, uh, like almost like we might listen to a dream. Mm -hmm. And this can seem very foreign because in our culture, we're taught to live like from the neck up. It's, we're like floating heads. It's like what we think and how our face looks. And that's like the attention. And, you know, one thing yoga does that I love is it, it just brings us back into our body and it can be terrifying in there. There can be traumas and memories stored. Um, there can be ancestral stuff. Uh, there can be, you know, aspects of soul, uh, uh, you know, a lot that uh, maybe our mind isn't ready to receive can live in the body, which is, I think sometimes involves why there's a flight up to the head and it's hard to drop in and it can mm. take time and we have to be patient with ourselves. But there's a lot when I've worked with people and with myself, in fact, I'd say I'm still unconscious of a lot in my own body as much work as I've done. There's a, there's a, there's a whole reservoir of all that we don't know or, or unconscious to that can arise through our body. And having our body awake is a way we commune with earth and the world around us. So it's essential. That's why I put it in chapter one. Right. Yeah. You talk about um, also just um, uh, you, you encourage people, your, your, your readers in the book to embody the mysteries of their dreams Um how do you let dreams guide your life? You know, we talked about the bear dreams, um, but how do you en encourage people to, I guess you also talk about the sort of radical dreaming and dark or radical dreaming. How can that help the world? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so I'll start with regular dreaming first because okay. it's opening to our dreams. And that's, you know, dreams are a conversation that we have, you know, the culture has mostly dismissed as like dreams are extracurricular, but for most of the time humans have been on the planet um, dreams were key for spiritual and practical guidance. And everybody listened to dreams in the morning, like the way some people now listen to the news, but mm. the news coming from the other world. So, you know, a way to begin is really to just remember your dreams, write them down, write them down in the present tense, even if you might not understand them or your brain might say, oh, I don't think this means anything. Just really like put aside your judgments and consider every dream has meaning. The dream world is a place, you know, with intelligence. And what would it be like to reform a relationship with it? I always say the dream world is like the friend that you have always by your side that you forgot about or you told you don't have time to listen to. But you can change that right now, today. You can turn to that friend and say, I'm sorry, and I want to hear what you have to say, and I want to listen, and I want to begin tracking those dreams and engaging with those mysteries. And radical dream is specifically asking our dreams for guidance around, you know, how to help land and species. There's ways, there's things so much that we don't know in our dream, whether personally or planetarily, and our dreams are a window of um, just tremendous intelligence that if we're willing, we can open to. 
Yeah, that's great. Uh, and and I, I love what you said earlier about um, sort of dreams is the news of the day <laughs> when before there was, uh, you know, digital news, you know, that, that we just have to be attached to them. That's a great, great notion like that. Um, uh, so we're going to go uh, in, a, in a, shortly, we're going to take a break shortly, but um, um, one of the principles I like that you mentioned is, okay, now uh, talk, you talk about, you've got a frame called, um, a term called love warrior. Um, so what do you mean by that? Uh, well, love warrior is, I think, somebody who loves something enough that they're willing to fight for it. Um, and I like to put those words together because fighting is often automatically viewed as bad, like, oh, you should just be peaceful all the time. And I think that there's a bit of a that's a there's a loss in that because um, a fighting is a kind of a love. It's it's an engagement that something's worthy of it. And sometimes it does take fighting for certainly our planet is one of those things that it seems like. Um, to change things. It will take um, love warriors, people who care enough for the earth that they're willing to speak up and risk their own, um, you know, selves to stand up for what they love. Right. So we're going to take another quick break. Um, but folks, uh, we have a lot more in our last segment with uh, Roberta Guabert. So don't go anywhere. Uh, uh, we'll be right back. <music> Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Rebecca Wildbear, who is the creator of The Practice of Wild Yoga and the author of a recently published book by the same name. Now, before we come back to our conversation, I just wanted to make sure that um, I just uh, let you know a little bit about Rebecca, how to get in touch with Rebecca, and where you can find out more information about her. And now your website is is just RebeccaWildBear.com. Is that right? That's correct. RebeccaWildBear.com. Right. And you can learn about my programs online and in person there. Uh, you can learn more about my bio. You can listen to media downloads of other podcasts, uh, learn more about my book or about my background, or you can learn about some of the activist groups that I um, support or, you know, like to honor, remember. And uh, I also work with the Animus Valley Institute, so you can find some additional programs I guide on their website, animus.org. Great, great. Yeah, you can find out a lot about her programs. You can sign up for the programs, and you can uh, also find her book and buy her book. So um, that's all on her website. So um, so back to our conversation. Um, 
we were talking about um, being a love warrior, uh, and and so how how similar is that to you know just environmental activists, or is it just there's I guess there's more passion to it. There's a deeper sense of self. Yeah, I, I liked using the word love warrior. In some ways, environmental activists are sometimes looked at looked at as um, angry misfits. <laughs> I, I wanted to reframe that because um, the, act, the activists I know, many of them are real, truly love warriors. In other words, um, most of the ones I know volunteer their time, aren't making any money or certainly getting any personal recognition, but oftentimes they're getting themselves in trouble more, you know, possibly with the law or or their, their life endangered. There's many activists that have died uh, fighting for the earth, such a, you know, a large number um, every year. Um, mostly indigenous people who are fighting for the earth. That's the largest percentage of people that are doing it across the planet. Um, so I just wanted to name that this is, um, it's its kind of not considered a very important job <laughs> in our world. Um, and I wanted to kind of bring honor back to it as a, such a necessary feature in the balance of the whole of all of us. And we all might be called to do it in different ways and might look like not necessarily being at the front lines for everyone, although that may be the need for people to do that. Um, it, there's not a, you know, there's just a kind of a sense that to be a love warrior is to stand up for what's best for the earth. Also, um, in the movement, there sometimes is a misunderstanding about what it means. Like, um, activists are people who buy sustainable products or, um, you know, like, uh, use electric cars or different things like that. And my book is presenting a very different, um, uh, kind of view that environmental activism means something quite differently, that you know, being a love warrior for the earth means standing up for the ecosystems and the biosphere of the well-being of the earth, you know, not about what's gonna happen to the future to humans or not happen. It's about like, you know, right now, you know, bringing ourselves into balance and right relationship with the earth. Yeah, I do like that. Again, I think language is important sometimes and reframing it as a, you know, certainly being a warrior is a lot different from just being an angry activists, <laughs> as you put it. Um, so I like that. Um, and, and you have another term that, that is somewhat related, I, I think. Um, but talk about this too. So in your book, you talk about um, a feral female ferocity. Uh, and what is a practice that we can use to embody that? Um, and also tell, tell, talk to me about, about uh, your choice of uh, female as opposed to just, you know, is that, is that significant in, in your term? Yeah, um, you know, feral female ferocity. Um, I did choose um, female, um, and, and sometimes I did that in part um, to make a statement. Oftentimes, ones most not allowed to be fierce are women, or sometimes it's in our uh, society that's based a lot on hierarchy. It's anybody that's lower on the hierarchy is not able to be fierce to anyone higher. In other words, um, you can't do wrong to somebody higher on the hierarchy, but those who you can do wrong to are lower on the hierarchy. And I was trying to bring back into balance by saying feral ferocity, like wild ferocity, the ferocity of nature, which is a lot, a lot about protection, you know, like scorpions and uh, snakes are small, they're lower on the food chain, but um, if they are threatened, you know, they will, they will protect themselves. And in our culture, you know, even if you're protecting yourself it's you know usually not considered okay to be fierce if you're you know lower if you're a woman if you're lower on the you're just supposed to kind of be quiet or overlook it and so i wanted to call back into being a natural wild feral ferocity and almost say this is part of our wholeness 
in uh, sessions I guide with women, I've so often heard like they had an angry dream character or they've noticed they felt angry and there's just like so much shame, like, oh, I don't know why I feel that way. I shouldn't feel that way. And I wanted to call back into balance that sometimes our anger is, you know, whether we're male or female, our anger is a healthy clue uh, to something's wrong here. You know, there might be a boundary violation or something to pay attention to or something we love's being harmed, you know, whether it's ourselves, our families, our friends or the earth. And that if we're going to become love warriors, we certainly have to um, call back and honor this part of us that has the capacity to be fierce and the longing to protect life and the respect that that's a worthy, healthy, um, imbalanced thing to do. Yeah. I think that, as you know, as you were saying that I was thinking about female and in terms of rebalancing the perception from a natural perspective, because certainly in nature, it is often the female of species that are at least as ferocious as the male, right? I mean, if you, you don't try to get between a, a female bear and her cub, right? <laughs> um, and in, in a lot of species, I think, actually, I think uh, I'm familiar with a lot of hawks and eagles, and it's the female that is the bigger of the species. And, and I don't know if you could say it's specifically more fierce, but certainly, you know, rebalancing that perception of, you know, maleness versus femaleness in terms of the ferocity of protecting the species or the planet. So I like that idea. <laughs> I'm warming up to that idea. So, um, um, yeah. And uh, another, you know, you have a lot of different terms. I just want to get to them because I think they're, they, they evoke a lot of interesting things. So I'm uh, moving on from uh, ferocity to earth grief. And, and you talk about what is that? So what is that when you experience earth grief and, and what do you do about that? Um, yeah, you know, that's a term that I took from um, Buner, whose book, he has a book called Earth Grief. Wow. And one of the ideas is that um, uh, the feelings that arise through us may be the earth herself speaking to us. Sometimes there's a view that if we feel anxious or terrified or outraged or depressed, that, oh, gosh, there's something, you know, wrong with me. And maybe I need to go to therapy and feel better and, you know, just or get myself into a better mood somehow. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of challenging that idea and saying, you know, if we're having these feelings in our bodies, maybe we could honor them and consider if some of them might be part of earth grief, just an acknowledgement of what's happening on our planet at this time and what the earth's going through and that we might be having some of these feelings arise in us and that maybe by listening to them and feeling with them, they could actually help bring us back into balance, you know, feelings our feelings aren't necessarily things to just make ourselves feel better. They're often clues about like what's going on or the way we're living that, um, that can be felt. And also that earth grief itself and grief itself can be like a portal, you know, like a conscious altering experience. Like people take um, um, hallucinogenics or like dreams can be conscious altering experiences, you know, like something that takes us into another realm where visions and other possibilities can emerge through. So if we let ourselves go into our earth grief and listen, maybe we'll, uh, what will arise is other possibilities. Right. And now, is that related to your other notion of, uh, as you call it, making a pearl out of our vulnerabilities? Is that similar? Um, there's a similarity um, um to that, but it's a little bit different. The pearl of vulnerability has a lot to do with the individual wound that we each carry um, into the world and the sensitivities related to that. In that view, we all have been wounded in some way. 
and we all have protective parts which keep us from knowing about that wound re-experiencing that wound we usually redesign our lives so we never have to experience that wound ever again and it's usually happens unconsciously but in the soul guiding work that i do to live our soul or our purpose into the world one way we do that is by becoming more conscious of our core wounds and our core sensitivities and be willing to feel them and that there's gifts and possibilities that live inside inside those um those sensitivities that are part of our vulnerabilities right so that i guess the sense of the pearl is that that's the coating around the the the, the wound just like a literal pearl around for an oyster right yeah the like the jewel and the beauty the precious beauty that um was made through through the wounding right so so switching to a little bit more of a from grief to to romance uh, another thing you, you talk, you've, we've mentioned this earlier, but I want to just get back to it uh, about the notion of romance with the world. And, and you, again, what, going back to our theme of wild, uh, you know, the notion of wild eros, and, and you talk about that and, and why that's important. Yeah, uh, romance with the world and wild eros, you know, romance with the world is a little bit like opening to the mystery of what we love, like letting ourselves feel turned on by what we feel turned on. And it might not be another person, you know. For me, it's been forests or like I became a river guide because it was also rivers um, and also soul guiding, you know, which is why I studied to be a soul guide. And now, you know, a bit of earth activism, you know, those things like inspire, inspire me. And so I become what I love. You know, when we follow the mystery of what we love, it's not about getting what we love or who we love. It's about becoming what we love. And uh, it, that's what the world is asking us to do. That's why we fell in love. And, um, you know, Wild Eros is kind of about having a full-on embodied relationship with the world. You know, like it is sensual, it is physical. You know, my relationship with waves and water and the ocean and the rivers is is very like physical. It's, it's hard to be a love warrior for the earth if our body can't feel the love. We, you know, we have to let ourselves um, feel that full-bodied love connection to the world. And, you know, my wild, my wild Eros chapter is, you know, is pretty... Um, a pretty wild chapter because I also talk about false eroticism and I'm kind of going back and forth between the two because, you know, Eros, uh, the term you can all, you almost can't say it in the world. When you say erotic, people automatically associate it with, you know, sexuality or even pornography. And, and I'm kind of pointing out in the chapter, absolutely not. You know, that's the yeah. opposite. In fact, that can numb us out to the real wild Eros. And my practices are to help us um, wake up our bodies and our hearts to the real potentialities of connecting, uh, you know, erotically and wildly to the to the wild world and to the world, to yeah. ourselves. Yeah. So uh, let me talk about that uh, in relation to your, your programs. Um, so you're a soul guide, and, and give us a sense of what your programs are like. If someone signs up for them, what, what do they uh, expect to experience? Well, if you sign up for a wild yoga program, we'll have a lot of um, wild yoga every day. We'll do a practice and it's pretty gentle. Um, I'm not like a, it's it's I, it's varied to whatever level somebody is at. In other words, I have tell people they can do different things on their mat and in the experience I guide. So if you're new, you might be just doing gentle things coming into your body. You might be um, if you're advanced, you might be doing other things in my non uh, wild yoga programs. I guide for animus. I do a little wild yoga, but not every day uh, in my wild yoga programs. I do it every day. Um, but we also do dream work every day because, uh, like I said, dreams are the news. You know, I don't know what anybody needs, but the dream maker does. 
And so when I listen to people's dreams, everybody's journey is individualized. It's not me deciding, well, this is where you, the direction you should go. I just help the person listen to the dreams. I always tell humans, I don't work for you. I work for the dream maker. I'm just trying to help you listen to the dream, trying to help you hear what it's saying and experience right. what it's getting you to experience. Yeah. We always have a wanders in nature and particularly guided suggestions for ways to be in conversation with nature. I usually offer a lot of options for whatever level people are at. Um, we also do earth ceremony and ceremony with each other where we can be in um, a depthful conversation, um, mm -hmm. kind of a real conversation that's a bit spontaneous and wild where we can take risks to hear parts of ourselves we might otherwise be afraid to speak. Uh, there's opportunities to kind of wake up to our creative self, our muse, um, shadow parts of ourself that we weren't aware of. And really, it's kind of about tuning into these greater forces um, and aligning ourselves with the animate world. And yeah. so that we can live our life from there on out when we go back. And I do focus on that, how to carry the visions that you received back into your life to live in service to these messages that are coming through much right. larger conversation. Yeah. Now are these um, uh, virtual programs, are some of them virtual programs? Or are they all in person or? Um... Yeah, I have a series of virtual programs starting up immediately. Um, April 27th, my listening to the intelligence of the body starts up um, in um, late May. Um, my um, Deepen Your Ecological Perception online shows up. So both of those are online. And I have um, a Feral Female Ferocity online program as well mm -hmm. as uh, Receiving the Love of Trees uh, online program. So people are able to do these practices from home, dive in, just meeting you know once a week for a couple hours. So you can find those on my website and sign up. And um, I do also have a couple of in-person wild yoga programs in the New England area this fall and uh, one in Colorado. Um, in June that has some wild yoga in it. And in all my programs, even the ones with Animus, I incorporate some wild yoga in. Great, great. Okay. Well, there's always much more to talk about with Rebecca Wildbear, but that's where we'll have to leave it today. I want to thank Rebecca for an unusual and inspiring conversation. Uh, once again, you can find out more from Rebecca going to her website, RebeccaWildbear.com. Uh, you can also find out um, you can listen to this podcast if you missed it today on my website, RowellResources.com. Uh, click on the 45 forward tab. Um, so um, be sure to join me uh, next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, when I'll be talking with Batsheva Marcus, the author of Satisfaction Guaranteed, How to Have the Sex You've Always Wanted. And she'll tell us about her life helping women and men too reclaim pleasure over their bodies and spirit. So until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.